Good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn it open to uh, Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 43. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you today, that's fine. We've got uh, some in the pew in front of you, and it's page 837. We'll have it up on the screen as well. And Dave, Pastor Dave and I were joking about how the phrase giving unit feels a little robotic, like I am a giving unit who gives 39 cents. Like it's just kind of an interesting little... First hour, I thought that was funnier. All right. Well, um, Luke chapter 6, verse 43. Um, before we get into our text today, um, I, I got to tell you a little bit about my, my son, Milo. He is uh, three and a half, uh, super tight with him. And uh, he and I have a recurring game of pirate sword fight in our house. Uh, do we have any other pirate sword fight people anywhere in the house? Okay. Uh, this is not that creative. It is basically... You are a pirate, and you sword fight in the house, and that's kind of how the game works, and it's pretty fun. Uh, so we swashbuckle throughout the house with foam, foam swords, and, you know, we just do the whole piratey thing, and we talk to each other in pirate voices and things like that, and it's quite fun. And uh, I always say things like, why is the rum gone? And he doesn't understand, because he's like three. Um, and he says things to me like, where's the treasure? And I say, it's in heaven, because I'm a pastor. Um <laughs> And it's, uh, it's just all around good piratey stuff. And, uh, and he always assigns roles, right? So he's like, today you're Billy Bones and I'm Long John Silvers. And the thing that he, uh, he does is he categorizes us into good pirate and to, in, into bad pirate. And I find this really funny because at the end of the day, we're still pirates. So good pirate or bad pirate is like a degree of, you know, how well-mannered we are. Um, it's like the, the subtleties for him of the fact that, you know, like we're both breaking maritime law and have no regard for human uh, possessions. It's just kind of like lost on him. So there's like good pirates and bad pirates. And, you know, it's kind of ironic, um, of course. So and so often when we talk about ourselves or when we talk about other people and we put them into these categories of good people or bad people, it kind of feels like the same sort of thing. We're just talking about degrees of goodness and badness of pirates. Um, the reason I say that is uh, about a thousand years ago, there was a, a theologian named Anselm, and uh, he was kind of the most popular dude in the Middle Ages uh, in terms of framing, thinking about how, what Jesus' death has accomplished and kind of the plight of humanity and all that sort of thing. And Anselm suggested that humanity had robbed God of his glory, that, um, that all humanity was kind of guilty of this uh, theological piracy, where we had kind of robbed God of his due worship and instead uh, worshipped creation or self and put ourselves in, in God's place. And so, this, so the way that he articulated what the cross accomplished was, again, like restoring honor and glory to God. And this is kind of Anselm's way of thinking about this. And so um, for, for us, I, th- I think it's so important to understand that people don't fit neatly into either category of good or bad. And And here's what I mean. Um, To say that people are all bad is to ignore a very important truth, which is that all people are made in God's image. Uh, We possess the uh, imago Dei, the the, the image of God, and and as such we have great worth and value just inherent into being a human. And, And what that means is we have capacity to relate to God and other people in a godlike manner. So you can't really say everybody's all bad. But on the other hand, you can't really say everybody's all good, which is to ignore the pervasiveness of sin, the reality that sin has marred us and all creation. Now, you might be a very, very moral person on the outside, but totally motivated by pride on the inside. 
And so this is why you might find outside the church, people who don't maybe know God, relate to God uh, as God, doing all kinds of great compassion and justice in the world and doing very, very good things. It's because they're image of God people. On the other hand, you might find in the church a lot of corruption, potentially. People who know God, confess Jesus as Lord, and yet uh, are corrupt on the inside because, again, people are good-bad. And so uh, uh, we're in a series, it's called The Upside-Down Kingdom, and what we're doing is we're taking a look of, at the teaching of Jesus in this section called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. It's, it's the shorter version of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And he is looking at what is it to be a person under his rule, to be a kingdom of God person, uh, to be someone who's been turned upside down by his love and by his grace and live it out in the everydayness of our lives. Now, what we find here is that Jesus has not come to make fine tunings to our morality, to slide us up the continuum to be a little bit more good. Okay, so this isn't, um, you know, like the book "Follow the Rabbi: uh, Motivation for Self-Help." Okay, so like this is not what we're getting at here, where Jesus says, I, "I'm just going to give you the resources to help yourself and be a better person." Rather, he says the, mo- the moral categories of good person, bad person, really are inadequate. Um, instead of being a little bit better, he says, I want you to be a whole new person, right? I actually have come to make you new, uh, a new way to be human. We're not talking about grades of better or worse. Rather, we're talking about belonging to a kingdom of God or building the kingdom of self and the kingdom of darkness. And so far, we've seen what it looks like to embrace this kingdom. It means prizing God and pitying uh, uh, the values that only last for today. It, it means being loyal to King Jesus and, and loving enemies and doing good to those who persecute you and bring harm to you and seeing them as opportunities rather than just opposition because of the grace of God. Uh, kingdom people are people who refuse uh, to look down their noses on others, refuse a posture of condescension and instead work the self-examination necessary to treat sin in others carefully and graciously. It's a kingdom of God. People see clearly their own sinfulness so they can be rightly related to others where they struggle. Uh, Are you with me so far? So today we're getting into three verses uh, that reveal the nature of this kingdom. What what is the nature of this kingdom? What's the outcome of this kingdom? And basically what we're asking is, what's it mean to be a Christian. What is a Christian? This is what this text is going to answer for us. So today, let's look at our scriptures and see what Jesus says. Verse 43, chapter 6, verse 43. Jesus says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from uh, briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Well, uh, the first thing I want to show you this morning is, is what, what is the nature of this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? What's the nature of this upside-down kingdom? Uh, the, the first thing we'll see this morning is that the upside-down kingdom, or upside-down people, rather, if we can get the next slide up, uh, the upside-down people live inside-out lives. 
Okay? Now, if that isn't too obnoxious of a sentence for you, I'm just going to say it again. Upside-down people live inside-out lives. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, people who are part of Jesus' kingdom live internally motivated lives. Okay? Inside-out lives are internally motivated Um, Living from the inside out means that rather than striving to live something that I'm not, which is a kind of hypocrisy, uh, I instead implement and live out what God has already made me by his grace. See, religion will work to restrain our behavior. It's, it's sin modification. It restrains us from the outside in. It says, do these things, live this list, avoid these things. And if you do, you can feel successful. And proud of yourself, and if you fail, you can feel like a failure and be depressed about it. Right? And so it basically says, live the list, get reward or get lack of reward or punishment. And yet the upside-down kingdom of Jesus does a work of inner transformation. It's an utter work of inner transformation that has external results. Okay, So to the extent that you and I see Christianity as just this list of moral restrictions and obligations, you and I will forever miss the heart of Jesus and what he has come to do. Um, these, these three verses actually help us understand the magnitude of what Jesus has done. And, and in fact, Jesus uses this incredible metaphor. It's just a rich agricultural metaphor. We're not an agrarian society anymore, so sometimes we don't think in, uh, in these ways. But Jesus uh, picks something fairly obvious as a word picture that basically says this principle. Living things produce outcomes that flow out of their nature. They flow from their nature. So bad trees don't grow bad fruit. Good trees, or I'm sorry, bad trees don't bear good fruit. I was just making sure you were listening. I'm a little disappointed that there was no pushback there. All right. Uh, good trees don't grow bad fruit. You don't look for figs on thorn bushes. You don't look for uh, grapes on a briar patch. Fig trees make figs. Grapevines make grapes. Simple, profound teaching of Jesus. Let's go home. All right. So there it is. Um, now, what's he getting at? I said living things are going to produce something according to its kind. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of gain some context. And when you want to get context in any biblical passage, it's always good to go back to, well, Genesis 1 really is the best place to start. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to get a little bit of a theology, a biblical theology of fruit bearing. Sound good? Buckle your seatbelts. Like just we're going to dive into some passages. So like get ready to dive in. Okay. If you can study for an exam in high school, you can totally track with a few Bible passages. All right? So here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He makes all things. He says uh, it's good, right? He, he's preparing uh, a land good and suitable for habitation, for people, and he's ordering his creation. And he says, let uh, the land bring forth vegetation. Check this out, verse 12. He says, The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Okay, so what's going on here? Everything, in other words, that God makes has this characteristic of integrity, okay? God causes things to grow according to its kind, according to its nature. Its nature unfolds and is more of the same, okay? You're not going to open up a squash and find a banana inside because all creation has inherent integrity. Are you with me? Okay, so um, God makes this world where living things produce more of what they are naturally. But then sin enters the world and we get a little bit of like 
a mess, okay? So uh, the world becomes sick, death enters the scene, and the entire universe is out of joint, so to speak. And as a result, the land would produce thorns and thistles, creating a new condition for mankind where uh, rather than enjoying the, the lush, good land and all that it brings forth, we would have to labor to bring forth fruit. There's a struggle now where previously there was not, uh, uh, presumably. And this condition of the land would mirror the condition of the people, right? So God, God uses the, the story of the land to show the people a bit of their own hearts. And eventually in the story of God and Israel, the, the idea of fruitfulness would become an image or a metaphor for the lives of God's people producing character and actions that would actually accomplish God's purpose in the world. So fast forward to Isaiah chapter 5. One of the prophets says this. We get this picture of God in relationship with his people. And he's looking for fruitfulness. He's looking for people to have character and actions that demonstrate his purpose in the world. And he doesn't find it. Look at what it says. Uh, Isaiah 5, 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. In other words, we're using the best material and the best environment, and we would expect a killer vintage. Instead, um, he, he even built a watchtower in it. It's protected. He cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a, a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Okay, so this kind of interesting song has turned into a tragedy. Fast forward to verse 7. The vineyard of Yahweh Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So what's going on in this picture? To help us understand a theology of fruit bearing. Well, first of all, this is a picture of God looking for the fruit of righteousness and justice. Righteousness is to be rightly related to God, others, self, and creation. And justice is the carrying that right relationship out in everyday life. Okay? Those two things work hand in hand. In Greek, they're virtually synonymous. And in Hebrew, they're always a word pair. Almost always a word pair. And they go together. And he's looking for that fruit of God in their lives. And yet it's not there. And so God has been looking for this fruit of righteousness and justice in his people. But now, like the land, they struggle to produce what God's looking for. And there's a play on words here, too, just to show how violently people have twisted what God's looking for. He says, uh, uh, he looked for justice. The Hebrew word is mishpat. Mishpat. But instead, he saw mizpah. Okay? And he looked for Sedeca, righteousness, but instead he only found Seica, right? He found this parasitic distortion of what God's looking for, okay? I'm, I wanted justice, I see bloodshed, it's opposite, okay? Righteousness, instead I just hear the cry of the distressed. And so um, what we see here is this question of how are people, the people of God, ever going to bear the fruit of God, how are we going to bear the fruit that God's looking for? Okay, hang on, a couple more verses. Let's fast forward to Isaiah 11. God starts to answer the question. He says this, a shoot will come up. Now again, the context here is God has like cleared a forest and there's like stumps everywhere, but this is the picture. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? 
David's dad. David is the king, right? And it was promised to David by God that you'll have a son on the throne forever. Okay, tracking. Good. All right. If not, that's news to you and that's awesome. Just hang on to it. Okay. Um, the spirit of the... Uh, this is what he says about the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch, capital B, will bear fruit. So there's going to be fruit again. Woo! Good news. Now, what about this fruit-bearing one? The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge of the fear of Yahweh, and he will de- delight in the fear of Yahweh. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with tzedakah, righteousness, he will judge the needy. And with mishpat, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. So God answers the question. There's hope. There's going to be fruit bearing again. But the answer comes in when and who. When? During the time of the Messiah. Who? It will be a descendant of David, whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest on. He'll rule with righteousness and justice. He'll bear fruit that looks like God's character. Fast forward even further to Ezekiel chapter 36. Again, another prophet who looks forward to the time of the Messiah and Fruit bearing will come in a new way where God will move people from the inside out. Look, listen to the words of Ezekiel. This is God speaking here through the prophet Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a, my, uh, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone, that heart that says you have to force me to move me and give you a heart of flesh. Soft, I melt in the presence of God. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my instruction. Then Luke 4, Jesus of Nazareth rolls into the synagogue in Galilee. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and he says, the spirit of Yahweh has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the broken." to proclaim freedom to the captive, right? He rolls it up and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. The Messiah has come. The fruit-bearing one has come. The one who has the Spirit and will endow the people of God with the Spirit. And then in volume two of Luke, Acts chapter two, you get a picture of the Spirit of God now coming into the church to indwell his people and to empower him. And what do you find? A community of righteousness and justice. No one regards their possessions as their own. People eat together, live in harmony. The age of the Messiah and the giving of the Spirit has happened. So, that is a bit of the theology of fruit-bearing. Now, all this to say, what is Jesus doing with this metaphor of trees and fruit? He's saying this, look, um, there are people who will connect relationally to Jesus the Messiah, and they will experience a change of nature. They won't be forced from the outside, they'll have a new heart, and they'll desire God from the inside. These aren't the people who just do good stuff and call it fruit, nor are they the people who neglect the fruit God looks for altogether. But rather, these are the people who have a new heart with new desires that Ezekiel talked about, who bear fruit because they know and love the branch of Jesse. The theologians have a word for this. It's called regeneration. 
Okay, it's where we get this idea of new life or the phrase born again. The, the Spirit of God creates new life in the people of God who trust in the Son of God. And, and these are the people who keep Yahweh's ways and instruction not because they have to but because they long to because they have a new heart because the Spirit of God comes and gives new life. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, new creation has come. And the ones who are declared right with God because they trust in His Son and embrace the grace He offers are not only justified, they're made new. Amen. Right. Now, I hear this all the time from people. I'm a sinner. My heart's so wicked. I'm, I'm just, I can't trust anything in me. You ever hear stuff like that? I'm just, I'm such a wicked sinner. And these are people who know Jesus, right? Now, does Jesus say I agree or disagree with that statement? Eh, it depends, all right? Um, I tricked you a little bit. Um, like it depends how you mean it. Your most fundamental identity, Jesus would say, is no. You don't have a wicked heart. You have a new heart that desires my ways. In fact, um, what Jesus is saying is, look, if you're in me, if you've linked up with me, if you have my spirit in you, then you don't have to squeeze good fruit out of a bad tree's trunk by sheer willpower. You are a good tree now. And you will bear good fruit. Uh, He says you have a new identity with a new heart and new deep desires that reflect who you are as a forgiven, accepted, redeemed child of God. That's who you are. But if I'm honest with you, I will tell you that I do not always feel that way. I don't always feel like that guy. I don't always experience that identity in the fullness of my life. And there's lots of times when instead of good fruit, the fruit of compassion and righteousness, I just see the old fruit of selfishness and conceit. And that can be really discouraging, so I have to ask the question, how do we even resolve that tension? If that's what's true, if the Bible affirms that you have a new heart, that you're internally motivated for the kingdom, then how do you deal with bad fruit? The first thing is that Jesus is not saying here that his disciples will never bear a bad fruit. He's saying that good trees bear good fruit, right? That the overall pattern of your life will be good fruit. Um, that essentially you will show your nature and how you live. This is not so much about perfection as it is production. What is my life producing? Will it produce Jesus-like qualities? It will, he says, if you know him. The second thing here that we need to grasp, and this is so critical for us, I don't want you to miss it today, and that is this, that there is a competition of desires in us. I don't know if you've ever felt this, uh, but there's these competing desires. I don't mean like competing desires between like, I kind of want Taco Bell, but I also want Chipotle. Obviously, there's no contest, right? (laughs) Right? None? Um, So... uh, this is, this is always going to be the series that went down as the Taco Bell series, isn't it? Um, and so what Jesus is saying, and I think what the Bible affirms, is that the followers of Jesus have new, deepest desires. But what Paul calls the flesh still fights with us where we have stronger desires at times that don't line up with the purposes of God. I believe... Um, you know, last weekend I, I was on the way to a, um, a retreat and I, I only had a couple hours till I had to be gone. I was going to be gone from the family all weekend and it was, I was kind of like a little bit stressed out about my to-do list and our neighbor, Pat, who can't get around, uh, needed somebody to take her to get her, her uh, prescription filled and a couple, go to the bank and a couple of just errands, right? 
and uh, and it's like prime traffic time. My wife at the time was like sick, and like I had a deep desire to do righteousness and justice for Pat. Yes, let's make sure she has all she needs. Let's do that. But my strongest desire was not that, right? It's like, take care of my to-do list now. That's going to take forever. Let's forget about it, right? And so the, the question is, which desire wins out in you? What is your practiced way of living out your desires. Are you most in touch with my deepest desires as a child of God or most in touch and, and giving way to the strongest desires sometimes of the flesh? And they're not always the strongest, but sometimes they are. What wins out? An application for us today, and again, don't miss this. Let's put it up on the screen. Let's do this this week. Where we ask the question, in terms of one of the areas of character in our lives, whether it's finances or relationships or my thought life or um, my speech and what I say, what will it mean for me? Let's ask this question this week. What will it mean for me to live out my deepest desire as a child of God in an area of character this week? What will it look like? To not give in to the surface desire that only yields instant happiness and will leave me with uh, regret. But what will it mean to live out my deepest desire as a child of God in my home, at work, with my neighbor Pat? Right. What is that going to be? Will you do that this week? You pause and say, what's it going to look like for me to live out that deepest desire? So that's the nature of the kingdom. It's inside out. It's internally motivated. It flows out of an identity of being accepted and redeemed. But what is the outcome, right? So, so Christians don't necessarily act like Christians, like they're faking it. They are Christians and live out what God has changed through his empowering spirit. But I want to show you the outcome of the kingdom. And that's this, that upside-down people live inside-out lives. Okay, that's the same sentence as the first point. But different underline. First, we live inside-out lives. We're internally motivated, but we also live inside-out lives, okay? And what I mean here is where before we, we, we saw that the kingdom life is actually internally motivated, here we see that it's externally demonstrated. Don't miss this. See, the kingdom of God is internally motivated, but it is also externally demonstrated. Jesus says very starkly, you will know a tree by its fruit. You just will. Like good tree, bad tree. I don't know. Look at the fruit. Right? And is fruit something on the inside of the tree or on the outside of the tree? Right. See, inside nature, the tree will yield something on the outside that will be obvious. Right? And I saw, I, I hear in sermons and from people that, that, that the Christian life is it's not a performance thing. God accepts me and that's it. Well, it depends what you mean. Like, oftentimes that kind of thinking is this function of the God saved me for heaven kind of thing. And I would just wait until then. But it's, it's absolutely void of the kingdom, which was Jesus' central message. And so, while it's true that we don't prove ourselves to God, we don't perform to earn his favor, uh, we certainly prove God in us. And we perform the favor God's already given us. This is so crucial. It shows up here in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And so often the first two verses get quoted without the third. 
He says, Paul uh, says this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And too often, verse 10 just gets left hanging. Like it, it gets left out. Like, yes, certainly saved by grace through faith, not by works. No boasting here at all. Let's it, close the service and in prayer, right? No, he doesn't stop there. He says, this happens for a reason and it creates the conditions for verse 10, which is this, that you are God's workmanship, his handiwork created as a new creature for good works. In other words, you and I, brothers and sisters, are saved from sin for service. We are saved from sin for service. Luther, the the reformer, his famous phrase is, faith alone justifies makes right, right, but the faith that justifies is never alone. What if our relationship with our family or our friends was like that? What, like, what if I was like, yeah, you know, I married my wife. I love Lauren. I have huge affection for her. I feel so glad to be in a marriage with her. But then I don't ever tell her I love her. I, I don't show affection. I don't take her on dates like... We had a wedding. What more? It's like we're not going to top that. So, uh, I don't. I don't figure out what her needs are. I don't try to serve them. Like, you know, I just say things like, "I'm so glad you married me and that I invited you into my life." I, I, I feel so secure knowing I have this legal status of married to you. I am a married one. Let's maybe I haven't get together with her and I say, "Can we have a marriage study?" Like, can we, like, let's read a book and have, like, learn some principles on marriage. We could know some stuff about this legal state we share together. It would be really awesome. I mean, what kind of marriage would that be? It would be a lie, wouldn't it? It would just be, I would be in a marriage, but I wouldn't be living as a married one. At that point, the power and the joy of marriage would be utterly wasted. There, there would be, I'd be in a marriage, but there'd be no fruit of married life. That's no marriage at all. Apply that to other relationships. That's what Jesus is saying here. Look, if you're with me, you'll bear fruit. Jesus says to us that the fruit-bearing life is a natural, joy-filled response to being a disciple, to being in relationship with him. That's what he says in John 15. He says, look, I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? If you're in me, like if you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. If you're connected to me, you will bear fruit. And it's for our good too. We come under his way, we're transformed into his likeness through his, his spirit. We become conformed to the image of his son. So, but what does it look like? In the context of Luke, it looks like this. Fruit-bearing disciples of Jesus love their enemies. They don't try to do damage to the people who try to damage them. They pray for the pers- those who persecute them. Fruit-bearing disciples resist the urge to condescend and judge. Fruit-bearing disciples examine their own hearts in dealing with sin in others. Uh, Pastor Dave got a great email this week, and I asked if I could share it. Uh, again, just a great application of last week's message. Somebody said, I, I use this acronym at work. It's called WAIT. Every time I go to talk, why am I talking? It's awesome. WAIT. Why am I talking? A fruit-bearing disciple will pause and ask, "What is this constructive? Is this bringing grace and redemption in this moment? 
But more than that, what Jesus calls us to in our new nature is not only to, to love him, but to live like him. And the trick so often is to not make a new list, a new legalism where I say, well, I do, I follow him and I read my Bible and I give and I pray and I go to church and I got my list. I'm good, right? So it's not a new legalism. That's not the test. The test isn't a self-determined list. The test is, do I live like Jesus? Do I live Jesus's life? A loving God and neighbor and especially the worthless neighbor. And get ready for some profound theological depth here. My, my theologian friend said, said this this week. He said, love is not the same kind of love as you use when you say I love pizza. There it is, profound theological depth for you. This is not the love that says I get my own pleasure and fulfillment and that's why I desire it. But enemy love is the I seek to preserve your dignity and well-being, even if it's a personal cost to me. And that's the kind of love we see in Jesus. And Paul says that we are given the Spirit, and the Spirit of God bears fruit in our lives. In other words, fruit is the outflowing of relationship with the living God. So that's a little bit of what fruit is, but let's look at a couple things that fruit isn't. Okay, This is, this is important. Um, first of all, we, we often see fruit as just mere external good works. Just, I did some good things. As if, as if our good works are a platform for us. As if they're like positive advertising for Christianity in, uh, to repair its negative image. You know, that's, that's kind of the, uh, this idea that fruit is just these external good works. It's only this kind of activity of charity and community involvement. And at that point, we're just stapling good works to our tree and calling it fruit. It might as well label the wax bowl of fruit as organic. Okay. Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It may be familiar to you, but I, I want to point out something rather obvious and I think important about this. Paul says, look, the Spirit in your life will produce this. It will produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness and self-control and against these things there's no law like against these things you can't form a legalized list because if you're living this out you will do justice and righteousness in your world you just will now let's put those in the context of jesus's sermon when you see that speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eye is it kindness that comes bubbling up in you when you, when you get pushback and criticism from someone close to you, is it self-control that rules? Does joy shine through when somebody else gets the promotion that you hoped for? Do you love the person that can't reciprocate? The second thing that fruit isn't is um, these fruit are not isolated, individualistic, or moralistic uh, items to check off a list. Actually, they're very gritty, earthy, everyday realities, and they're always lived in the context of relationships. See, anyone can have peace and self-control when they're not dealing with people. Right? You can have patience, and then you can have kids and know what it really means to have your patience tested. Or you can go to work and work with other good, bad people. Right? And sometimes they're more bad than good. Okay? Then, you see, all of these are, are developed by the Spirit in the context of relationship. Uh, the third thing the fruit isn't is, uh, they're not just passive things. Um, it, it's not something that requires none of our effort. 
Um, Fruit bearing is always a product of the spirit in our lives, but it's not passive. It will always require something of us. Okay, so it's not like I just get to sit back and the fruit will produce fruit uh, or the spirit will produce fruit. It actually happens as as the spirit of God engages me in concrete decisions over time in areas of my character that God empowers and helps, but nonetheless, they're decisions that I make related to my own character. And and like a growing a plant or taking care of any living thing, it requires nurture on our part, and it requires attention. And, and, And for example, if I want to cultivate a life of patience, it's going to take a work of God for sure, because I'm not by nature a patient person, yet it's also going to require me to do some conscious practicing of patience it's going to happen in conversation with god it's going to be best helped with accountability to others but it means being aware of the places that my patience is challenged it means being aware and reimagining a response in those moments and asking god for help and finally this morning friends i want to consider jesus last words in this this section which is this that uh, that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of this is so important for us. What, what, what about you today? Like, what, what's your heart feeling full of? Uh, what is it that your mouth is speaking? What's the message of your life? Is it that God of grace is alive and active in you or that you're the most important thing around here right now? You're kind of a big deal. See, the, the kind of fruit that, that is coming out of you and I in this season of our lives is indicative of what we've filled our hearts with and what Jesus says we treasure Jesus says that the good man brings good things out of the good stored up or treasured up in his heart or her heart. I think about treasure. I don't have a lot of things necessarily that I treasure or I would call treasure, but as an only child, I'm still a little messed up and I really don't like it when people mess with my stuff. So um, I can think a little bit about what this feels like to have some treasure. And um, this is good. I'm going to sound total pastor nerdy, but I do have a favorite Bible, and it, it, it's, I protect it like Fort Knox. Because like, like a dog that would like leather and a one-year-old is just a bad combination if you treasure like nice things. Um, it's like I often say, like, this is why we can't have nice things in our house. And, um, <laughs> and it's mostly due to somebody with fur and four legs. But... Um, uh, the other thing is like my shoes. Like I have a pair of shoes that just like I like, and so they go on the top shelf of the shoe bin. You know, it's like don't put anything dirty on top of those, right? It's like or else you will feel my wrath. And uh, and so the thing is, when we esteem something, when we treasure something, when we treasure it above other things, we are very intentional about keeping it treasured, aren't we? We're intentional about protecting its value, and we're intentional about kind of highlighting it. And making sure it's, it's experienced. Uh, listen to this Puritan preacher, Richard Baxter, said this in the 1600s. Um, the first and great work of a Christian is about his heart. There it is that God dwells by his spirit in his saints, and there it is that sin and Satan reign in the ungodly. The great duties and the great sins are those of the heart. There is the root of good and evil. The tongue and the life are but the fruits and expressions of that which dwells within. So, question for you, friends, this morning is, what is it that dwells within? What is it that you're storing up, treasuring today? Are you aware of your heart? Do you keep track of what's coming out of your mouth and connect it to, maybe I'm loving something distorted? Or do you keep it connected to God? See, only when we're aware of what our heart treasures then can we begin to weed out the things that don't belong there? 
that only hinder bearing fruit in our lives. And only then, when we're aware of our own heart, can we continue to feed our hearts with what's really worthy of treasure. How do we do that? Let's end with what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. He says this, Blessed is the one who refuses to walk in the way of the wicked, and instead, he says, whose delight is in the instruction of Yahweh, who meditates on his law day and night. This person, he says, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. So what if we were the kind of people, the kind of church who said, I am not leaving God's presence today until I'm not ceasing to meditate on his word until he becomes an utter delight to me. Where, uh, until the thought of the triune God becomes so much better to me than anything else, better than my own reputation or comfort or accumulation of things that will ultimately fade, then we'll find our hearts treasuring him and they'll treasure him and it'll show up in our actions and our words expressing what our hearts have treasured. Let's end this morning in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of Jesus that your Father is glorified, our Father, our Heavenly Father is glorified when we bear much fruit showing ourselves to be your disciples. We long to be the church that so treasures connection to you, Jesus, that we bear much fruit. We want to experience the incredible blessing of becoming like you and the fruit we bear We want to experience the blessing of the world being drawn to you through the Spirit's work of fruit in our own lives. Father, help us by your Spirit today to live as we are, redeemed ones, bearing much fruit in Jesus' name. Amen.